Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeart Podcasts. And how the tech are you? So I read the news today. Oh boy. Technically, I, I read it yesterday when all my troubles seemed so far away. But I had already recorded yesterday's tech news episode, so I couldn't include it in that episode. But the news is that E3, also known as the Electronic Entertainment Expo, is no more. It has ceased to be. It has rung up the curtain and joined the choir invisible, as it were. Or, to be less Monty Python-ish about it, the Entertainment Software Association, or ESA, has announced that E3 will stop trying to make E3 happen. It's like fetch. It's never happening. E3 is over. Now, some people would argue that E3 had already died years ago, and that in the years following, it was just a shambling zombie husk of what it once was. So today, I thought we would do a very short overview of E3, why it was a thing, and why it's now no longer a thing. And I have done lots of other episodes about E3, including some deep dives on E3's history. So please check the Tech Stuff archives for other E3 episodes if you want to learn more. This is more of a high-level look at the event and what happened. So here we go. Now, before E3, which officially began in 1995, the video game industry found it difficult to promote itself. And this was for a whole bunch of reasons. So first of all, back in the 1980s here in the United States, 
there was this massive industry-wide video game collapse, and it reset home video game entertainment and made a lot of retailers wary of another potential crash. Uh, it really set back specifically console games here in the U.S. There was a general point of view among much of the mainstream public that games were for kids and really only for kids. And a lot of people found it beyond belief that an adult would actually like to play video and computer games. This meant that when games began exploring material that wasn't suitable for kids, there was a huge disconnect. You know, people were saying you can't make a game where one guy rips off his face and breathes fire to torch another guy. These are for kids. That was the sort of thinking that was going on back then. In fact, that problem led to the formation of the Entertainment Software Association itself, the ESA. This is the organization that formally put on E3. Now, at the time, it wasn't called the ESA. It was called the Interactive Digital Software Association, or IDSA, but eventually it would change its name. So the games industry needed to create a review board that could assign maturity ratings to game titles to let people know what ages are appropriate for specific video games. If the industry could prove that it could regulate itself, well, that would help prevent the U.S. government from getting involved. So this was really an act of self-preservation in the video game industry, and it was all made necessary largely because the U.S. government was mostly comprised of old poops who were totally out of touch with the modern world. Some things never seem to change. So the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or ESRB, became a thing, and the ESA, the organization behind it, was a nonprofit. The ESA also would form working groups to help tackle specific challenges in the home video and computer game spaces. So stuff like intellectual property policies and that kind of thing. E3 would end up being the main way that ESA would pay for all this activity. It became a primary revenue generation kind of outlet. But that wasn't the main purpose of E3. So the main purpose, you know, outside of funding the ESA, was to give video game companies their own trade event where they could speak directly to retailers and distributors and the press. They could promote upcoming titles. They could make announcements. They could provide people the chance to experience early builds of games through demos. This meant that the companies wouldn't have to accept the indignity of going to events like CES only to get pushed out to a leaky tent in a parking lot. Because seriously, that's the sort of space these companies would usually get assigned because no one in consumer electronics actually respected the video game industry at the time. So going to a big event like CES it was hard to get noticed and to stand out among every other company at CES. And at the same time, you're in enduring really uncomfortable circumstances. All right. So E3 would become part promotional event, part networking opportunity and part revenue generator for the ESA. And then the ESA could fund stuff like the ESRB and various working groups and keep the entire industry safe from government intervention. So it was a mutually beneficial system for everyone involved. But over time, potholes formed in the road for E3. It got pretty wild pretty quickly, and this excess garnered attention. 
E3 started looking less like a professional trade industry event and more like a wild Hollywood party with lots of excess. And so the ESA tried to course correct, but it used way too heavy of a hand. So for a couple of years, E3 was much, much more subdued with individual sessions located in different hotels across town. And gone was the party atmosphere, and gone too was a lot of the appeal that brought people and attention to the event in the first place. And so the ESA course corrected again, and a bit more party crept back into the event. It wasn't as wild as the earlier days, but it certainly wasn't as buttoned down as the more restrictive years. But then another challenge began to emerge. See, some of the bigger companies started to realize that they could hold their own event. And it could be a physical event where people attend in person, such as Blizzard's BlizzCon that started in 2005. That allowed the general public to purchase tickets to this event, which really set it apart from E3. E3 was still an industry-only event, which meant to attend E3, you needed to be a game developer, a publisher, a distributor, a retailer, or a journalist. The general public was not allowed inside. Although a lot of enterprising young people would launch game-focused blogs or websites or, or such, and they would gain access to E3 that way. Anyway, BlizzCon was an early example of a company deciding to strike out and do its own thing and use that as a promotional event for its various products. The internet also was really changing things up. So in the mid-1990s, when E3 first launched, the primary media covering video games tended to be magazines. You know, physical paper magazines with names like Nintendo Power or GamePro or Computer Gaming World. The internet and the web were definitely things in the mid-90s. They existed, but they hadn't saturated our world just yet. But by the mid-2000s, it became a different story. And upon the rise of the consumer smartphone, things would really change quickly. Folks turned to the internet more and more for news and entertainment. And this also meant it would become possible for a video game company, particularly the larger ones, to hold their own events digitally, online, and to control the entire experience. See, one of the downsides of E3 is that every company there is competing against everyone else for attention. Usually the big companies would have their own presentations scheduled so that they weren't going up against anyone else at that time. So Sony would have a press conference then later on, Nintendo would have one, then Microsoft, etc. Another downside is it was very expensive for these companies to attend E3. They were spending millions of dollars on presentations and booths. That's a lot of money. Yet another is that E3 happened on its own schedule, regardless of how far along a company might be in development of their next game. So imagine that you are in charge of running a video game company and E3 is coming up. So you've got a new title that's in development, but it's so early in the development phase that it hasn't really coalesced into something that you can talk about easily. So do you go to E3 with nothing new to show and just rely on older titles that have already been released to kind of carry you through? Do you not go and you're not part of the conversation at all? Do you make a guess as to where your barely formed game is heading and then mock up something to show folks? And then what happens if development takes a different turn and the game you produce ends up being significantly different from the preview you showed? It was a real problem. Holding your own event would give you far more control and you'd have the spotlight all to yourself 
and you wouldn't have to worry about whether or not you quote unquote won E3. So the transition of companies leaving E3 didn't happen all at once, but there were signs as early as 2011. That's where we'll pick up after we take this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed. And I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So before the break, I mentioned that in 2011, things began to change. And that's when Nintendo held its first Nintendo Direct video news conference. And in 2013, Electronic Arts and Nintendo both chose to forego a live stage keynote presentation, instead opting to hold their own digital showcases around the same time as the E3 event. They did still maintain a presence on the exhibition floor, so they still had booths and stuff on the floor. But they didn't do a big stage keynote. They didn't do a live presentation in front of a live audience. Electronic Arts would further distance itself from E3 in 2016, and then Sony and Microsoft began to hold their own events in order to unveil hardware. They would just use E3 to kind of announce software. But then Sony announced in 2018 that it was not going to come back for E3 2019, 
or 2020. In fact, uh, nobody went to E3 2020 because COVID took care of that. Sony has been out of E3 ever since. Nintendo and Microsoft would announce earlier this year, back in January, in fact, that they were not going to go to E3 2023. And again, nobody would end up going to E3 2023 because the ESA chose to cancel the event because, frankly, hardly anyone was agreeing to show up to it. In fact, since 2019, E3 has only happened once, and that was a digital-only event in 2021. 2020, 2022, 2023, all of those events were canceled. Other things contributed to E3's decline. For example, in 2017, the ESA chose to open the event up to the public on a limited basis. They offered tickets for sale for the public to attend E3. And a lot of the industry folks found this really frustrating, particularly the journalists, at least in my experience, because those were the people I was hanging out with. And that was because getting around E3 and doing your job got a whole lot harder when the general public was taking up space. But the ESA was in a losing battle. E3 was becoming less relevant as more companies drifted away and started to hold their own events. Now, that's not to say that everyone found E3 to be irrelevant. A lot of independent game developers used E3 to connect with media and with fans and, for a while, retailers. But that does bring us to another thing that has changed dramatically since the founding of E3. So back in the mid-90s, if you wanted to buy a new computer or video game, then you as a consumer had to go to a store. Probably a toy store or maybe a big like electronics box store. You'd peruse the aisles and you would look for the title you wanted and you would hope it was in stock. But these days with digital distribution, buying a physical copy of a game is far less common outside of cartridge-based systems. That change meant that the role of distributors and retailers pretty much disappeared. So a big chunk of E3's reason for being also went away. Meanwhile, you had folks like Jeff Keighley, who once upon a time played a very important part in E3, but then would go on to launch their own events that would compete largely in the same space. Keeley's Summer Game Fest has become an alternative platform where developers can announce upcoming titles to drum up excitement. And then the Game Awards would also become a place to promote upcoming games. Also, you know, you could hand out awards and stuff, but if you saw this year's Game Awards, you know, there was way more focus on video game trailers and celebrity appearances than on the actual awards and recipients. <clears throat> that might be a little commentary from my point of view. Anyway, you could argue that E3's relevance really faded away a few years back. Actually, since only one event and a digital-only version of E3 has happened since 2019, I don't think it's even arguable. I think it's obvious. E3 was no longer relevant. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, at least not for the individual companies involved. It, it can be bad for some of the independent companies. It decreases the opportunities they have to get in front of people. It can be really challenging for an independent, a small independent developer to get that kind of attention. Sometimes, however, it can partner with a larger company like a Microsoft or a Sony and become part of a showcase for one of their events, but it's it's still challenging. For the ESA, the loss of E3 could be a real headache, because now the organization will need to determine how to manage funds to still fulfill its other functions. Like, E3 was probably the most visible thing that the ESA did, but that ESRB, that's still 
a thing that goes on. And there are still these issues of the working groups that try to help forge the video game industry stance on important issues. So that's still a challenge. I didn't even touch on some of the scandals around the ESA itself because it's not like it is immune to, um, well, to scandal. Uh, there are lots of them, in fact, including the time that the ESA accidentally doxed hundreds of video game professionals, particularly journalists. Yikes. In an era where there have been death threats made against game developers and journalists from uh, extremists, I guess I should say, it's bad to have all your personal information revealed online. And uh, yeah, the ESA did that. It was a whole thing. Anyway, after years of asking the question, is E3 dead? We can now say definitively, yes, it is really most sincerely dead. Does that mean it'll never come back? I'd never say never. I mean, maybe sometime in the future, someone will resurrect the E3 brand. I mean, people do love nostalgia after all, whether it's the ESA or maybe some other entity that, that purchases the rights to the E3 name. Maybe that will happen, but the original intent of E3 isn't really a thing anymore, right? We don't have the barriers to promote oneself that existed back in the 1990s. We don't have the retail and distribution channels that we had back in the 1990s. So a lot of the stuff that what E3 was trying to address no longer is an issue. It's moot. So I don't think we're going to get an E3, at least not the way we had in the past. Maybe we get some sort of larger public facing event that's run by a different organization, but I don't know. Anyway, you could say that it really stuck around longer than was necessary, but still farewell E3, fair winds and following seas. Uh, I only attended E3 maybe three times total since, since I started working this job back in 2007. So I am by no means a veteran of E3. Like I've only been a few times, but I, I can say like <laughs> there was some stuff that happened at E3, like some of those presentations. They were so wackadoodle weird that I do. I am sorry that they're gone because I mean, it was real spectacle. I will. I don't, I don't know that it was always effective in promoting a company or its video games, but it was always worth talking about, uh, not necessarily in a positive way, but yeah, I kind of miss that. That's no longer a thing. I mean, you can still sometimes see that in these individual companies events online, but it's not quite the same because they're not trying to outdo each other in the same space. So that takes a big part of it out. Anyway, that's the update on E3. As I said, you can go back into the Tech Stuff archives. There are lots of episodes about E3 that go into much greater detail and talk about the various changes that happened over the course of its existence. But yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, sad to say goodbye, but uh, I think it was past time. I hope you are all well, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Com slash compatibility.